uh, in Bloomington that care about them apart from their own church, which pastoring, pastoring can be a lonely job. Pastoring as a wife, can, a, wife pastor, a wife of a pastor is also a lonely job. So uh, just when that gets done, make sure it gets to the back somehow there. And then last thing before I do this week, uh, next week I'm starting a new series. It's called uh, Jesus, the Bible, Sex, and You. And it's something I've thought about for quite a while and have been thinking about for quite a while. And let me just make a couple con- comments about this first. It's not about condemnation. It's not about politics. It's not about winning the culture war. It's not about us versus them. It's not about pledges, rings, or just say no campaigns. And this is for anybody from junior high up to age 80. It's not just about people who are in that stage of life. This is about what I'm calling it. It's about the life-giving gift of our sexuality that God's given us. And it's about the mission of Jesus to make you absolutely holy and wildly free at the same time. And uh, next week, I'm taking a lot, basing this a lot, starting from the book of Genesis, where God talks about creating us. And I'll give you a little hint of next week. Next, uh, it says, God made us in his image. And my conclusion of that is, if he made us in his image and we are sexual beings, then God must be a sexual being. Now, let that sit in your head for a while and see what it does to you. What is, and may, it may redefine our understanding of our sexuality. It wasn't like a mistake that happened after the fall. So we're going to look at that. We'll look at specific things, even like what's marriage, when is sex uh, within the realm of what God says, when is it not within. We'll talk about homosexuality, gender issues, all kinds of things. But we're talking about it from Jesus and the Bible, not what we wish or hope were true, but we're going to think about what does it mean to think about Jesus, how Jesus and the Bible talk about these issues. So we're not trying to convince other people. We're not trying to win a culture war. We're trying to think and act like the Bible does. And I'm 53 years old, and I still need to be learning about what it means that I'm a sexual being. And I'm not just talking about sexual behaviors. I'm talking about there's, that's part of us that, that frames most of what we do. I mean, you can't read a newspaper lately without hearing about Bill Cosby, Jared Fogel, or somebody's sexuality gone really, really bad. But when God made it, when God designed us that way, what, the way I described it, it's a really big yes, and I'm making a why, I'm a cheerleader here, a why. It's a really big yes, but God surrounds it and guards it with a lot of no's. But the primary thing when God made sexuality was a big yes. So that starts next week, um, and we may even, out of that, maybe do some other Q&A times and things like that, but that starts next week, so just kind of give you a heads up on that. Let me pray, and then we're going to look at God's Word today. God, we believe... Um, we believe in the invisible world. And we believe right now we're in a physical world, which of course we all know. It's you know, 70 degrees, it's sunny, and we're on a gymnasium floor that was probably 100 years old. And we know all those physical things. We're breathing in oxygen. But we also believe that this very moment, every single one of us also is a spiritual being. And we have the capability given by you to interact with the invisible world in which you are incredibly active and your Holy Spirit is always talking to us, always showing us things. So we ask you, God, to give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you're saying to us and what you're showing us. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, You may see a billboard like this somewhere, or you may have seen a bumper sticker like this. You know, Jesus is the answer. And then you see some of these cynical bumper stickers or billboards that says, so what's the question? 
Because it, sometimes it's given as kind of a real simplistic thing. Jesus is the answer. Um, there was a story told about a pastor teaching a kid's Sunday school class. And he said, uh, what's small, has a bushy tail, and climbs trees in search of nuts? And this little boy said, well, I know the right answer is Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me. Because <laughs> right? well, Jesus is the answer. But the question, it begs the question of what is the question that Jesus is the answer to? And I'm going to simply say this, and it, it, I'm not trying to be simplistic, but I think it's the right question. The right question is, who do I trust with my life? Absolutely, who do I trust with my life? Who can I trust? Who should I trust? How do I trust Jesus with my life? One of the things uh, I'm doing, a, I'm just today's the last Sunday of a series on the kind of the DNA of Exodus. And the very first statement in our theological document simply says, we trust Jesus. That's the starting point for what we do. Our starting point is not... We trust the Bible, even though we do, but our starting point is a relational starting point through a man we believe sent, was, sent from and incarnated from God himself named Jesus who walked this earth 2,000 years ago. So we trust Jesus. We trust what he says. We trust what he thinks. So when Jesus quoted from like Genesis 1, 2, and 3 when he was around, we trust the fact that he must have believed there was some reality and truth to that. So we trust everything about Jesus. But then you might beg the question, or it might beg the question, well, why Jesus? Um, about a year and a half ago, go to the next slide, about a year and a half ago, I did a series on different world religions. And we interviewed, you know, a Buddhist monk, uh, a Mormon elder, a leader in the, Mor in the Islam Islamic mosque, a Jewish rabbi. Um, Islam claims Jesus is one of the great prophets. He's a great prophet. No more than that. They believe actually when Jesus was crucified, there was a switch done and someone else died. They revere Jesus as a great prophet, a prophet in the line of the prophets we would have, you know, Moses and Noah and all these prophets. But he wasn't anything more than that. Buddhism sees Jesus as somebody who was simply enlightened, like other people have reached enlightenment. He achieved what the Buddha achieved, which was enlightenment. Mormonism believes Jesus is a eternal being but they also believe we're eternal beings and we're just like jesus and if he can sit on the right hand of god so can we so in doing so they kind of lower jesus so it's not the same jesus we're talking about a progressive christian this is a friend of mine who calls him a progressive christian will say jesus is the way to god for me but not for everybody so that's a different jesus a Hindu views Jesus as an avatar, which is simply one of many empowered incarnations. And many of your friends, neighbors, family members simply see Jesus as a good person, a good teacher, but not God. So do we say we trust Jesus simply because we're born, most of us, Americans and have Christian influences? Is it just the coincidence of our birth that we trust Jesus? Or is there a reason to say that? simply more than cultural. Because what, what people want to tell us is, well, it's just because you were born that way. If you were born in India, you'd trust one of the Hindu gods. If you were born in Saudi Arabia, you'd probably be saying we trust Muhammad. But trust is a pretty powerful thing, isn't it? Think about the people you trust and think about when you stop trusting certain people or don't trust people. There's reasons we trust and reasons we don't trust. 
And I'm, I'm guessing for most of you, when you think of your friends or your family or boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, your trust is based on experiences you have with them. It's not simply based on truthful state, statements you read about them. And what's interesting, too, is how do we trust? I mean, I could say I trust Abraham Lincoln. I never met the man. So I never met Jesus in an earthly sense, but so how do we say we trust him? Because if that's the foundation of why we even are here this morning, or why you might call yourself a Christian, we really have to be able to answer that question. Can I say I trust Jesus? So to do that, I want to look at three different scenarios from the life of Jesus. Um, go to the next slide there. And, and this is not the only ones. It's kind of like what I would call my personal highlight reel of Jesus. And you might say, well, if you're taking them from the Bible, how do we trust the Bible? That's a whole other conversation, but the Bible is a trustworthy document. And if you want to have that conversation, I'd be happy to have that with you. But when we read, read lot, the stories of the life of Jesus, there's things about him that to me make him an incredibly trustworthy man. And you might also want to read the story of Muhammad or Joseph Smith or some Hindu leader or a Buddhist leader. And it's your job to compare and figure out what do you trust? What do you trust? Because this is kind of a life-altering event to say that. It's like when I got married to my wife and basically saying, I trust her, I do. It's a life-altering event to speak that kind of trust. So if you're a follower of Jesus or you're thinking about it or you're wondering about it, it's no small thing to say this three-letter statement, we trust Jesus, or in your case, I trust Jesus. It's no small thing to say that. So here's the first, first scenario. I'm going to give you three different scenarios that I think uh, for me and I think for many people throughout history have given us reason to realize we, tr we trust this guy. First one is this, in Luke chapter 4, and I'll, just, uh, I'll read the passage, and you can just listen along. This is when Jesus first came onto the scene kind of in ministry. He'd, he'd grown up as a carpenter's son. He was 30-ish. We don't know exactly how old he was. But he shows up one day in the temple, or in the synagogue, in the town he grew up in. So synagogue worship was like a two or three times a week kind of thing that was part of their life. It was you know, Galilee, it was, a small, the area, it was a small town. But people knew who he was. They knew him as Joseph's son. So it said, when Jesus came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood at home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. Everybody took a turn. Every man took a turn to read the Old Testament scrolls. And this apparently was Jesus' turn, coincidentally. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. And this is what he read from an Old Testament document, the Hebrew Bible. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and the time of the Lord's favor has come. It's a pretty big mission. And then he says, then it said he rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant and sat down. And then I love this part of the passage. All the eyes on the synagogue looked at him intently. So he hands off the scroll and he goes back to his seat and everybody's, they're in awe because they know something's going on here. And then Jesus says this, the scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. You know what he's saying? 
this, this, this mission, this person that's going to set people free and release people and give blind people sight, it's me. And they were just amazed. But interesting enough, they were also angry because a few verses later, they're trying to throw him off a cliff. It's like, so they knew he said something that was pretty earth-shattering. He was claiming to be the very person God had sent to the earth. They wouldn't have pushed him off the cliff if he was just saying, I want to be a good person in life and make the world a better place after I leave it. Nobody gets angry about that. He was making a claim from the Old Testament that all these Jewish people in the synagogue at the time would have known about. And he's saying, this being, this Messiah, this chosen one, this anointed one who's going to come, is going to set people free. That's me. And that starts this whole drama of his ministry in the New Testament. But just the fact that his mission was to release captives. And let me, let me highlight something. His mission was not to get people at, into heaven after he, they died. Yes, that's what happens to somebody who's a follower of Jesus. If you follow in Jesus in this life, of course you're with him in the next life. But his original hearers would not have heard. They heard this person has the power to set me free from some of those things in my life that keep me stuck. And the Jewish people knew for years they were stuck in terms of they were occupied by the Romans, so they thought that way. But Jesus also talks about, and they understood it to mean, individuals will be set free from all those things inside of them that keep them from being the fully alive people they want to be. And Jesus says, that's me. I'm the one who can do that for you. And the fact that he said that, knowing he was going to get pushed back, the kind of courage that takes makes me trust this guy. And the whole New Testament is full of times where he does the very thing he said he came to do. Consistency. Integrity. I came to set people free. So he spent time healing lepers and blind people and hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors, letting them know you can be a whole, alive person again. So his message, his mission, what he said, is exactly what he did. No respecter of persons. I love that about Jesus. Next passage. This is in John chapter 2. It appears in a couple different places in the Gospels. Jesus was going to the synagogue in Jerusalem. And what was happening at the time there is it was a religious festival, and if you were a good Jew you would always go to Jerusalem during certain festival times of year. And since you were coming from a far distance, part of the religious practice was you had to have a sacrifice to offer either a dove or a lamb, depending on your wealth level. You had to pay a temple tax, but it had to be paid in the coinage of the Jerusalem area. So if you came from out of town... You often just brought your own money, and then you bought those things when you got there because you didn't want to be carrying a dove all the way down from Nazareth or Galilee, and you didn't, you didn't always have the Jerusalem currency. You had your own. So when you got there, and in a good-intentioned way, there were people initially that would sell you your lamb or your dove, and they'd change money for you. Somehow over time, that good intention, like all religious good intentions, starts to kind of fall apart. And then they start moving into the temple area themselves. They kind of set up shop there. Again, probably thinking we're helpful now that we're right here for people. Then they started figuring, wait a minute, if people are coming from out of town, they really need this to connect with God. We can make a profit off of their need. So they started charging exorbitant rates for doves 
and lambs and sheep and started giving incredibly pitiful exchange rates for their coinage. So now what started as a good intention to help ex- people from outside connect with God in meaningful ways during this festival became a way for people to make money and profit. So Luke chap- John chapter 2 talks about Jesus going into the temple, and this is what he sees. He knows what's going on. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices, and he saw money changers behind their counters. And this next line blows any, any concept of you have about Jesus being a really nice guy. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. This wasn't an impulsive thing. You don't, um, he had to go find ropes. He had to figure out how to make this whip. He didn't bring one with him. He wasn't Indiana Jones. So there was some intentionality there. He was not impulsively angry. Angry, yes, but we'll see why. But he made a whip for some robes, chased them out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and oxen, scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Don't turn my father's house into a marketplace. And then his disciples remember the prophecy from Scripture, passion for God's house burns within me. Because what, what he was mad about was this. He was mad that the religious establishment had created, instead of a bridge for people to connect with God, they created obstacles. And the average person even felt farther from God because now they had to not only buy these things but pay extra profit. And so Jesus is mad at anything that keeps you farther from God. He's mad, that makes him angry. He's not angry at you. or uh, He's angry because that's not what the intention was of what God meant for all of us. And actually, just as a side note, this event was one of the events that started the Pharisees, the religious leaders, talking about how do we kill this guy? So this is a big deal. I mean, Jesus, he wasn't going postal because he was totally in control. But just think for a second of this, the scene where tables, coins are blinging all over the floor and bah, animals are probably pooping all over the place as they're running away. Doves are probably hitting people. It's chaos. And Jesus is the one that started it. I mean, couldn't he have been a little more diplomatic? Excuse me, sir. Could you maybe sell your doves a little bit cheaply? We'd love that. Thank you very much. Excuse me, could you give a better change? Right? Thank you. Thank you so much. Isn't that the way Jesus should have done it? He didn't. And, and this, is where I, this is where I loved about Jesus, too. I, this is because I, I trust this guy. He will say to you, he will say to all of us, things that everybody knows is true, but nobody else has the courage to say. Everybody knew what was happening. Nobody else had the courage to do anything about it. And let's talk about you. The, bodies, the Bible says our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Then it gets a little closer to home when Jesus comes into your temple and starts saying things to you that everybody knows is true, but nobody has the courage to say to you. Don't you love a person like that? But also don't you hate a person like that? Because sometimes I don't want to hear what Jesus... I don't want Jesus to tell me I'm being selfish with my wife. I don't want Jesus to tell me my anger was off off the charts. I don't want to hear that. I want Jesus to confirm everything about me. But Jesus will come... He will turn over tables in your hearts if he needs to. Not because he's an angry God, 
but because he will do anything that keeps you from connecting with God in the intimate, life-giving, strong kind of way he knows is possible for you. So I love, on the one hand, I love this Jesus. On the other hand, I wish sometimes he didn't come at me that way. But he knows he has to. And if that's the kind of leader you want, this is the kind, again, he's somebody who will speak the truth to you that everyone else knows, but no one has the courage or the love to tell you. Wouldn't you love to have a friend like that? The last, last of the three passages, and again, there's multiple vignettes. Actually, in, in, in the Gospel of John, John even says, I've just wrote a little bit about what I saw in the life of Jesus the world couldn't hold all the books that needs to be written about what he did. So these are just the fact that some of these events were chosen and these were written and God led people to remember these things is what gives us confidence about Jesus. But in this last one uh, is another one that uh, blows me over. This is when Jesus is on the cross, Luke 23. So he's on the cross, and if you know the story, at least the, the real story, not the kind of... Um, softened version, if you've ever seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, or those kind, they give a real kind of picture of what his death was like. Uh, brutal is a good word that comes to mind. Torturous, uh, bloody. Um, I can't imagine that kind of pain. They didn't just kill him. Um, they tortured him. And these people who did that were not only the Jewish leaders who handed him over, but the Roman soldiers and the Roman leaders who were all okay with it. And Jesus, let me stop for a second here. Think about somebody who's hurt you in your life. Mom, dad, sister, brother, boyfriend, girlfriend, ex-husband, ex-wife, somebody at the store who ripped you off. I don't know. We all have people that we think have ripped us off, hurt us. And we all would say, yeah, it's really hard to forgive them. Or I'm not there yet. I can't really forgive them yet. So Jesus is on the cross, dying, bleeding, probably in excruciating pain none of us have ever experienced before. And he speaks the words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I've said this before, but when I saw this in the theater, The Passion of the Christ, when I saw that scene depicted, I was at the College Mall Theater, I remember thinking, I've never seen it that way. Because I always think, oh, I can forgive somebody after the fact. Give me a few days to calm down. He's forgiving them, and it's not even over yet. He's forgiving them in the midst of the pain. In the midst of a conflict I have with Joe or Sam, can I say to God, God, forgive them? They don't know what they're doing. Not in a condescending way. They're stupid, God. They're ignorant but in a way that Jesus was actually, you could almost say he was praying for them. God, don't withhold your favor from them. They don't know what they're doing. And I don't know what kind of conflicts you're in right now, or you will be in, relational, whatever. Where you, and you might say, I'm having a hard time forgiving them. And it's okay if that's where you are, but you can't stay there. Because nobody could say, if Jesus would have said, after the resurrection, hey, I'm, hey, disciples, I'm resurrection of the dead. I'm really having a hard time forgiving the Pharisees. I'm, so you know that, guys, I'm having a hard time. No, because they saw he forgave them before he even died. And I remember walking out of the movie theater, and I thought, where do you get that kind of strength? Where do you, how can you be that kind? That's the kind of person I want to be. 
And it reminded me then of the book of Acts where Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was being stoned to death. Not with marijuana. Stoned, all right? To death. And he's being stoned to death, and he's in the process of dying a brutal death. And he says, Father, don't count this against these people. And it's one of those, again, those things you read, and you're like, wow. Where do you get that kind of strength? He's, forgive, he's asking God, don't count this sin against them. Boom, boom, boom. Don't hold this against them. I mean, like I said, I, I think I'm doing good if I can forgive somebody in 48 hours. In the midst of the hurt, no way do I want to forgive them. I want to kind of nurse it a little bit. It feels good. Do I hear an amen? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. It feels good. But to be the kind of person who can offer forgiveness as a part of your character, in the midst of the pain, who doesn't want to be that strong of a person? The whole concept of forgiveness that, that is expressed there, it doesn't show up any, in any other world religion. The idea of a God forgiving his people, the idea of a God forgiving those people who are wounding him, which would be us, who aren't perfect, who make mistakes, who sin. The idea of a God who unconditionally pays the price of the sin for his own people doesn't exist in any other world religion. And the fact that Jesus didn't just preach about forgiveness, he embodied that character of God because he was God. I just need to, I mean, I, why would I not trust this person? Unless somebody else in history shows me somebody else embodied that in a deeper, fuller way, so even apart from, if I simply just believe these accounts are historical renderings to some degree accurate, which even, even non-Christians would at least, well, there's some accuracy there. Okay, who is this guy? Who is this guy that, that has this incredible mission of, of setting free people that are like the outcasts and the down-and-out people and people like us that are broken? Who is this guy that, that goes into the temple and causes a ruckus and kind of writes his own death warrant? What kind of courage is that? What kind of honesty is that? Who is this guy that forgives people when they're beating him up? Tell me, tell me who you would choose to be a better person to model yourself after. Courage, love, compassion, forgiveness, strength, tenderness. One of the things that's good to do every once in a while, go to the next slide there. You know what Jesus is. And sometimes we ask, uh, you know, fill in the blank. And we often, well, Jesus is the Savior. He's Lord. He's good. He's kind. I put a list of things down that I, uh, from all the different stories in the Bible, you can describe Jesus. Jesus is focused. He's truthful. He's blunt. He's emotional. He's fierce. He's non-manipulative. He's explosive. He's the most manly man ever. He's sensitive, compassionate, and kind. Courageous enough to say what everyone knows but won't say. Strong, generous, unhurried yet unrelenting, disruptive, wildly free because he's absolutely holy. Jesus is dynamic, playful, unreasonably forgiving, witty, humble. He's the greatest leader ever, the greatest teacher ever, the greatest social justice activist ever. And then my favorite word to describe Jesus is he's brilliant. 
And you're like, whoa, whoa, well, brilliant. That's, that's kind of the university's domain, right? No, he's brilliant. Because what is brilliance? Brilliance is somebody who understands reality as it actually is. I don't know if, you're, if you've been in the, whether you're a student or not, you've been in the union near alumni hall. And on the, I don't know if you've noticed, etched on the wall, there's names of uh, great people like Abraham Lincoln, Aristotle, and Jesus is on there. I don't know if that building was built today. They'd include that. But it's interesting that we often think, well, Jesus has like this knowledge of spiritual things. But in the realm of just kind of knowledge, we don't, Jesus doesn't get a tape, seat at the table there. It's like, my, my question is, why not? Who's more brilliant than Jesus? Who understood the dynamics of how to change water into wine? Who understood the dynamics of how to heal somebody who had leprosy and give them baby pure skin? Who understood the dynamics of invisible world to such a degree they allowed themselves to be raised from the dead as well as raising others from the dead? Who understood people? Who understood interpersonal dynamics? Who understood forgiveness? It's brilliant. Brilliant man. Not just a good man. He's brilliant. So the question I'll leave all of us with, myself included, is, will you follow him? Because Jesus doesn't give people the option to say, well, he was a good guy. I mean, yeah, you can, you know, there was a couple years ago, I, there was a, somebody had a Facebook page for Jesus, and he had millions of followers. Let's be honest, it doesn't take a whole lot of loyalty to be a Facebook follower of anybody, right? Or follow somebody on Twitter. Because you can un-whatever un them, unfriend them, whatever. You, you can do that anytime you want to. But the kind of following Jesus asks for is, are you in, and are you in for life? Because I will take you places you'd never imagine. I will set you free in ways you never could, uh, could think was possible. I will take you on an adventure of life and intimacy and joy and power that you've never, but you've got to be all in. You can't be half in and half trying to figure out, I want to control my own life. And if you're following Jesus, that means there may be things you're doing now that are incongruent in with following Jesus. Habits with your money, habits with your sex life, habits with your mouth, hab whatever it is. And you know those are incongruent with following Jesus. And you're trying to, you're trying to do this line thing. So I, I want to make sure I get enough of Jesus to make sure my ticket's valid when I get to heaven. But I still want to be me. I don't want God to mess with the, the tables in my heart. So will you follow him? And you, there's no... Yeah, I will, but. Yeah, but I, with only, I will only if. Yeah, I'll follow Jesus. He needs to understand some things about me. And I'm saying that because those, those are the things I say to myself. Well, I, I, I'll follow you, Jesus, but do you really? <laughs> there was one time I was, kind of, I was riding my bike. I was riding my bike uh, on the west side of town. And I kind of said out loud, I, I, don't, I don't pray out loud all the time, but I don't pray out loud when I'm on my bike. So if you see me, don't assume, I'm, don't assume I'm praying or whatever. But if I'm talking out loud, don't think I'm mental either. And I actually said out loud, God, I am so tired of being misunderstood and people having assumptions of my motives that I know aren't true. I felt, honestly, I felt like Jesus said back to me, yeah, I know where you're coming from. And I was like, oh, you do, don't you? Yeah, misunderstood, 
people misassume under under uh, misassuming your motives. Oh, you you do, because we often think, well, Jesus doesn't understand what I'm going through. There's nothing you're going through that he doesn't understand. He has empathy to the nth degree for all of us. He understands those things. The Bible even says we have a high priest that understands our weaknesses. So if you've played this game of, well, I'll follow Jesus, but he, but blank, 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 Jesus doesn't get that option. Or if you say, I'll follow Jesus, but not now, Jesus talks about those kind of scenarios. He's saying now, will you follow me? And I'm not just talking to those of you who may not yet be followers of Jesus. I'm talking to those of you who, like me, have been following Jesus for 30, 40 years. Because there's always ways in which Jesus is challenging our commitment and our trust. Our trust. Not commitment to a theological body of truth, but our trust of this person that we believe still lives today in the, the, the living Jesus who still speaks to his people and asks us to do things that stretch us way beyond comfort. Do you, will you follow this guy? So that's why we call ourselves Christians. We're not, we, don't, we don't make an idol of the Bible. We don't, we don't make an idol of what I would call American Christianity. We, make, we, we follow Jesus. I was just talking to someone the other day about, and this, some people are like, well, this is kind of silly, but I was talking the other day about, uh, oh, my son was telling me at his school they did the pledge, to the pledge to the Christian flag. He went to a Christian school one year. Pledge allegiance to the Christian flag, yada, 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 amen, whatever it is. And they pledged allegiance to the Bible. Legends of the Bible, God's holy word, blah, 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 blah. And this, some people might say, well, you're kind of nitpicky. I was like, I wouldn't do that. And my son's like, what do you mean? Our, our allegiance is to Jesus. It's not to the institution of whatever the Christian flag represents. And my allegiance, hear me on this, is not to the Bible. It's to Jesus who trusts the Bible and uses the Bible to speak to me in my life. My allegiance is to Jesus. Your allegiance is to Jesus. It's not to the American way of life. It's not to American Christianity. It's not to the Bible. Understand, I have a high view of the Bible. I believe the Bible, absolutely. But I believe it because Jesus believed it. I trust it because Jesus trusted it. Again, you might have questions about that. I have really, I'd love to have a conversation about that. But I, our allegiance is to Jesus. So that's why we trust Jesus is the defining statement of how we understand things at Exodus. So let me pray, uh, and then we're going to take communion. And let me do this first. Um, close your eyes. Uh, right now, there, I'm, I'm guessing, I know, um, not because I know personally, but I'm just, there are people here who, you're wrestling with something Jesus is asking you to do. And you say, I trust him and I will follow him but either, you, either you're just wrestling and you, you want to follow, but you just want some confirmation in some form. Or maybe you're wrestling because you don't even want to follow. You don't want to let go of what he's asking you to leave behind. But you want to, or as like I like to say from one of my favorite authors, you want to want to follow Jesus. Or you want to want to want to follow Jesus. You want to let that go. If, that's, if you're in one of those two battles, a struggle because you want to follow but you need clarity, or it's a struggle because you want to follow but you don't want to let go of something, keep your eyes. I'm going to have to just stand up. Not, not, not for any kind of way of counting, but just so you can kind of use your body to affirm to God what you know to be true.
and I'm standing, but I'm standing, if you know what I'm understanding. I, I, I'm struggling with something, not to let go of something, but I'm struggling with something I'm wanting God to give more clarity on. So again, if that's you, either one of those, stand up. And then let me pray. Um, God, these individuals that have stood, and I'm sure even many who are sitting, would say, as much as we understand, we want to follow you. We do trust you. And like the disciples, help us in our unbelief. Help us in the ways in which we don't trust you completely. So for those standing, if it's clarity they need or some kind of affirmation of what you want them to do, would you give that to them in a way that they know it's from you? Because, God, you speak clearly. You don't speak in riddles. You don't speak in puzzles. And for those who are standing who want to follow but doesn't, don't want to cut ties with something you're asking them to cut ties to, would you, would you love them to the truth of what they can be when they do cut ties with what they think is giving them life? Would, they, would you show them that the lie of what they're letting go of gives them life? Would you show them that it's your love that gives them life? And would they walk away from what you're asking them to walk away from so they can follow you more fully alive, more fully free, and more fully awake to you? Uh, go and have a seat, everybody who's standing up there. And God, just, uh, we love you, Jesus. I mean, to say that you're our leader and our friend is an understatement, and to say that you're our hero almost um, isn't even the right words either. But that's why we're here, because of you. And we ask this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. We finish every Sunday at Exodus with communion, and we do that because it is a relational commitment we make to Jesus. So communion is not a religious practice, even though it is. But it's a relational interaction. All right, when Jesus said, this was my body, this is my blood, he was saying that at the night last supper with the disciples during Passover. Do this and remember me. When you eat this, when you drink this, remember me. Again, it wasn't a religious thing to check off on your box to make yourself feel better about your week because you did what you're supposed to do and you earned some points. It's a relational connecting point that Jesus established for us to have. Because what he's saying is you take... By, by taking this into your body, it's essentially a prayer. You're asking Jesus to have more of him inside of you, which means some things inside of you may have to leave to make room for more of Jesus. So by taking communion, it, it's, it's a statement of trust. Not of perfect, perfect trust. None of us trust Jesus perfectly. It's not a statement of perfect lives and sinless lives. It's a statement of, I want to follow you, Jesus I want to want to follow you, Jesus. Or maybe I just want to want to want to follow, but something in me wants more of you, Jesus, and you have to help me out. So here's how we do it at Exodus. The band's going to come on up, and they're going to lead us in uh, a song or two. And then as soon as we start singing, you're welcome to come on up. We don't dismiss by rows. Uh, anybody can come on up, and there'll be somebody to each of the three aisles offering you bread and just tear off a piece of how we do it here. They offer you the cup and how we do it here. You dip it into the cup yourself. Don't try to drink out of the cup. It's not like any kind of major theological issue. It's just how we do it here. Most people eat it right away. Some people take it back to their seats. It's, uh, it's your choice on that. So let me uh, say thank you to Jesus, and then we'll sing. Um, Jesus' gratitude probably is even almost too weak of a word to say what we want to say about what you 
did for us and do for us through your death and resurrection, that you do turn hearts of stone into flesh, and you do turn the parts of our hearts that are dead into being fully alive. And we thank you, Jesus, that you do this for us. Um, thank you. Amen.